We are keeping democracy alive with Bert Cohen. Check for pulse. Stand clear. Push to shock. So yes, there's a huge gap between public opinion and public policy. That people don't feel that they can do very much. You know what this is? This is a very Hamiltonian system. Alexander Hamilton being the guy here in a very un-Jeffersonian. In the case of the Republicans, it's dramatically the opposite. Uh, But even in the case of the Democrats. An absolute typhoon of terror against African Americans themselves. America's fascists are those people who think that Wall Street comes first and the American people come second. We're only seen as a financial sector that's uh, gotten out of hand. The shooting, the violence, that is not the drug problem. That is, in fact, the drug policy problem. I speak tonight for the dignity of man. And you might think this upcoming quote is about the election of 2016. Here's the quote. What at first looked like a disaster was, in fact, the beginning of a renaissance, unquote. Well, it's actually about an electoral disaster that landed on liberals in 1920. Perhaps there's an opportunity for us today to learn from this history. The election of 2016 was a super shock for liberals. It seems for months, many of us were wandering around in a seriously depressed daze after Trump won the White House. Up until election night, all the polls had our nominee winning easily. But it wasn't close. A man who seemed indisputable was absolutely not even close to being qualified for the job, beat a highly polished centrist political insider. Yes, it was and remains a shocker. But what was defeated and what won? Did liberalism itself, uh, is liberalism itself swept into the dustbin of history? Did the election mean the end of the line for the traditions of the 20th century liberalism? In order to win future elections, must the Democratic Party now turn away from liberalism and instead embrace something else? And what might that something else be? Before the election, many of us liberals were somewhat gleefully picturing what it would be like for the Republican Party after Trump had been soundly defeated. Would they split into one far right and one old school conservative part? Well, of course, we don't have that now to worry about, at least for now. While Americans in the 21st century have become accustomed to instant gratification, history never, ever works that way. There was a time less than 100 years ago when it seemed the rug had similarly been pulled out from under liberal strength, not just losing one election, but four presidential elections. Leading liberal Americans' minds hunkered down, got together, and did not let the losses impede their vision or activism. And of course, liberalism came roaring back to a point where today, many decades later, the Republicans are still fighting to destroy liberalism's significant accomplishments. This moment of, shall we say, unplanned opportunity came for liberals in 1920. The presidential election looked like a disaster for liberals who suddenly found themselves in a political wilderness, not unlike today in some respects. Our guest today, Brad Snyder, tells the story of how a network of liberals influenced American law and politics from Theodore Roosevelt's defeat in 1912 to Franklin Roosevelt's victory in 1932. 
Our party's standard-bearer, President Woodrow Wilson, split liberals deeply and led to victories for the very antithesis of liberalism, Warren G. Harding. Brad Snyder's newly published book is called The House of Truth, and it was a real place, actual bricks and mortar, in which some great minds met and altered American history. Many would say for the better. I'm certainly one of those. After the liberals took a drubbing, American liberalism went on to define the rest of the 20th century. Brad Snyder, thank you so much for being with us today on Keeping Democracy Alive. Bert, it's my pleasure. Well, a uni- he's a University of Wisconsin law professor. Brad Snyder teaches constitutional law, civil procedure, 20th century American legal history, boy, that must be fascinating, and sports law. He's written two critically acclaimed books about baseball and numerous law review articles about constitutional history, including the Supreme Court's mishandling of the case of Julius and Ethel Rosenberg. Snyder has contributed articles to Slate and the Washington Post and appeared on ESPN, C-SPAN, and in HBO and the New York Times documentaries. So again, thanks for being with us, Brad Snyder. Here we are in 2017. Liberals find ourselves still in shell shock, thanks to the Trump election, which had the effect of wiping out many good liberals across the country who had been expected to win good people like Russ Feingold. I'm guessing you started writing this book before the debacle in November. What was your purpose in writing House of Truth? And what went on in this House of Truth? So um, thanks, Bert, for the great question and for the great introduction. I started writing this book about six years ago um, with the idea that liberalism didn't start with the New Deal or with Franklin Roosevelt's election in 1932, that, that you know liberals formed professional and personal networks of journalists and politicians and lawyers and artists, and that that process occurred far earlier, uh, beginning with this political salon around 1911 and 1912. There was a pro-Theodore Roosevelt political salon in DuPont Circle in Washington, D.C. I mean, in a row house that just looks like the typical sort of semi-rundown DuPont Circle Row House off of 19th Street on the northwest side of, of the city. And the, the people in the House really thought that, that, that the key to getting all their policy initiatives um, through the Congress and, and the key to really standing up for the rights of working men and women and children was to reinstall Theodore Roosevelt in the White House and to oust um, Roosevelt's one-time protege, um, William Tower, Howard Taft. So um, it was really what I call in the book the de facto campaign headquarters right. um, for um, the Roosevelt's bull moose presidential campaign. And, of course, Theodore Roosevelt lost. Mm-hmm. He challenged an incumbent, in, 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 incumbent Republican, and he lost. And they, they quickly split with Theodore Roosevelt after they started this magazine um, which today we know is the the New Republic in right. 1914 as an outlet for their ideas. Back when they were liberal, they, they em- embraced Woodrow Wilson for a time. Mm-hmm. But then when Wilson entered World War One, which they supported, he started abridging civil liberties yes. both at home um, and abroad. And that's when uh, they really split with Wilson. And, and I would argue after Wilson lost that liberalism regained a lot of its power. It gained a lot of its power when they were out of power. Um, as an underdog movement, as someone who stood up, as a movement that stood up for the little guy and stood up for, um, in the case of the late teens and early 20s, um, radical immigrants 
um, who are being ch- criminally yeah. charged under the Espionage Act, yeah. um, who are threatened with deportation, um, not unlike um, some of our immigrants are today. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and really, that really was liberalism, I would argue, at its finest. So what went, this House of Truth, it was a like a row house. If you've been to DuPont Circle, you know what it looks like. What went on there? How did it uh, happen to be? How did it become a, a salon? Did it start out as the unofficial campaign headquarters, or what was well, the genesis? Well, the man who owned the house was um, past commissioner of Indian Affairs, a man named Robert Valentine, who really, unfortunately, has been kind of lost to history because he died quite young. Um, he died um, in 1916 uh, of a massive heart attack, oh, but um, Valentine was the, was the highest-ranking member of the Taft administration to quit the administration hmm. and to go work for Theodore Roosevelt's presidential campaign. This was front page, page one news hmm. um, in, in the New York Times when he did this. And, and Valentine, as the owner of the house, was sort of a divisionary. And he invited several of his friends to live in the house um, while um, he was working in the administration. And those friends um, were um, a young lawyer named Felix Frankfurter mm-hmm. um, and, and several other people with ties to Harvard. And and they began having dinner parties. Washington was a much smaller place then. Um, there were no cars. There were, um, you know, very few automobiles. And people basically rode around in carriages. But people mostly walked to work mm, um, in, nice. in D.C. in those days. There was no television. Mm. Uh, there was radio. But you know, people socialized, and, uh-huh. and people's entertainment were sort of these dinner parties. And they would invite anyone who was anyone in D.C. To these parties, it didn't matter what their political affiliation was, but but you know it, they were sort of raucous affairs, mm. uh, not formal at all, very informal, and just sort of freewheeling discussions about policy. And so people like um, Justice Oliver Wendell Holmes yeah. um, became a regular at this house. Um, the sculptor who built Mount Rushmore and another um, main character of my book, um, Gutson Borglum, um, was a regular at this house because Borglum was a huge. Um, Theodore Roosevelt supporter. Um, Louis Brandeis, who was then a lawyer and now a Supreme Court justice, was also um, regularly in town and a regular at this house. Um, but, but all sorts of people, Herbert, Herbert Hoover, whom they admired very much um, during World War I yes. um, for his Belgian relief efforts, yes. um, was a regular at this oh, house. Interesting. Um, other Supreme Court justices would come over to the house. Journalists would come over to the house. Um, member, British ambassadors... Um, w- would come over to the house. So really it was it, it was a salon in, in sort of, um, it wasn't sort of like an, in, an inclusive little club, right? They, they really wanted just interesting people with interesting ideas to come over and, and talk about um, the events of the day, but also their ideas, um, which really focused at that point, given the industrialization of America, um, with um, what was happening to working men, women, and children. Um, in factories, in terms of being paid substandard wages, mm. working in inhumane conditions, and and how to solve those problems, both at the state level and at the national level. Fascinating. Interesting bunch. Boy, to have been there, that must have been fun. I imagine there must have been some alcohol involved. You know, like... uh, I think there were alcohol involved. <laughs> um, also, they, they had women there, too, women who... <gasps> Shocking. Who, um, were both involved in some of these political movements, but also, you know, these were largely bachelors. They had, you know, young um, women there, too. So it was a sort of a mixed group of people. It wasn't just, you know, a bunch of stuffy old men um, smoking cigars um, and drinking. Um, it, 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 they were kind of these sort of raucous, freewheeling parties. 
Oh, fantastic. That sounds like a lot of fun, I have to say, and having good discussion. Oh, there's nothing quite like that. If you just tuned in, our guest today is Brad Snyder. We're talking about his newly published book, House of Truth, a Washington political salon and the Foundations of American Liberalism. One of the main participants of the House of Truth, Walter Lippmann, was one of the first, if not the first, to define the word liberalism. How, how did he define it? You know, Lippmann wrote in The New Republic, and I, and I talk about this in the introduction of my book, Lippmann lived in the House of Truth, I should add. Um, when Lippmann comes down uh, in 1918 to go work in the War Department during the war, he lives in the House of Truth um, with his uh, new bride, Faye, and she's the first woman uh, to live in the house, but so and they become very, very close with Felix Frankfurter. Uh, but Lippmann, in 1919 or so, um, defines liberalism sort of as a, as a departure from progressivism, almost as a rebranding, not really um, of with any specific content in terms of issues, but more a rejection of the old party politics of the past, oh. um, and and so. Uh, I think that what was going on was that they progressives put so much faith in sort of this idea of a, sort of an, almost an, a Hamiltonian vision of a big federal government to solve their problems. And I think by the end of the Wilson administration, they began to see that, yes, the federal government could help um, solve a lot of their problems, but the federal government could also abridge civil liberties and, and, and run roughshod oh, um, over disenfranchised minorities. Oh, interesting. Well, I find the term liberal, I think, got such a bad name in the election of 1988 when uh, uh, there was uh, Willie Horton, the Willie Horton ads that made liberal Mike Dukakis look bad, letting bad guys out on the streets before that. And then people since then have kind of run away from that name and somehow are more comfortable with the term progressive. I'm okay with either one. I, you know, I'm left of center. Yeah, you're totally right, Bert. When I um, talk about this, I sort of analogize it to that period, right, to the, huh. to the Dukakis, um, George H.W. Bush election, where after that it became unfashionable right. to be called a liberal. You know, George H.W. <laughs> Bush sort of turned the word liberal into a dirty word. Oh, I know. So um, they rebranded themselves as progressives. I think that was largely a, a, a change in nomenclature. Yes. But there were some huge party shifts going on during this earlier period, right, where if you uh -huh. look at the people at the House of Truth in 1912, they thought the Republican Party could have been the vehicle for liberalism well. if T.R. were president, right? Then they sort of shifted to the Democratic Party with Wilson, and then they sort of explored some third-party movements in 1924. Frankfurter, but not Lippmann, backs Robert LaFollette's third-party run yes. because they thought that the Democratic candidate, John W. Davis, um, was too tied to the banks. And then I think by the end of the decade with um, with Al Smith and then, of course, with Theodore Roosevelt, um, one big accomplishment of these people associated with the House of Truth is really turning in the Democratic Party into the liberal party or into the party of liberalism. Uh -huh. And I know there's still um, liberal Republicans long after this point, but, but uh, Frankfurter in particular um, was a visionary about this. He saw Theodore Franklin Roosevelt as a way to turn the Democratic Party into the, the liberal party, and he, he saw this before a lot of other people did. Oh, interesting. And, and Robert LaFollette, i got to read more about that guy. The more I read about him, he was a Republican, but certainly one of the most liberal uh, U.S. senators 
ever. <laughs> Just and, and he had opposed the war, uh, the First World War, of course, very, very strongly. And Woodrow Wilson had also been seen as a liberal before his reelection in 1916. He'd been a genuine partner with the left-leaning anti-war movement up until then. What, what did he do that alienated him, Woodrow Wilson, from the party base in 1917? I guess uh, talked a little bit about that before, just going to war for one thing. Yeah, well, I think that, you know, this group at the House of Truth was sort of pro-war. They were interventionist. I think this was Uh another um, big thing about liberalism. It was sort of an interventionist as opposed to an isolationist liberalism. The the founding of the New Republic in 1914 by Herbert Crowley and Walter Lippmann and Felix Frankfurter and others, um, these were interventionist liberals. So I don't think they had a big problem um, with Wilson entering World War One. What became troubling for them was the passage of the Espionage Act um, right. and the Sedition Act, and sort of taking away the mailing privileges um, of of newspapers um, like the Jewish Daily Forward, but even sort of socialist newspapers like the Masses, and then sort of jailing anti-war critics, yeah. you know, most prominently um, Socialist Party le- leader um, Eugene Debs. That 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 I think really gave this group pause. Okay. And then, um, you know, Holmes, Oliver Wendell Holmes, um, really becomes their spokesman with his famous free speech dissent um, in the case of Jacob Abrams in November of 1919. They really have someone who, who's speaking truth to power that, look, you can't run roughshod over these um, sort of harmless dissidents, um, civil, liber- civil liberties, um, just because it's wartime. And then, you know, later in early 1920, um, Frankfurter and his Harvard Law colleague, um, Zechariah Chafee, are serving as defense counsel um, for radical immigrants in Boston um, who are scheduled for deportation as part of the Palmer Raids. And they save 16 of those 20 um, immigrants from deportation. So it's this sort of idea of liberalism as an opposition movement and, and, and Wilson sort of overreaching and the other thing that Wilson did that annoyed Lippmann and that led to Lippmann's um, famous book on public opinion um, was Wilson's decision to censor the press corps over in Paris. And so um, the, the American press corps um, really couldn't tell, what was, tell the American people um, what was going on um, during the Paris Peace mm. Conference and during the negotiations because the Wilson administration was censoring them and, and George Creel um, was... Um, issuing a lot of propaganda about right. what was going on. And so those kind of things um, really led to some skepticism um, about what Wilson was doing. Well, I can hear a lot of parallels there, you know, problems yes. with, with immigrants, with, with radicals. Oh, wow, interesting. And, and with the free press, right? Oh, yeah. Jeopardizing um, people's right to speak out, um, wh- whether um, you know, it, it's through protest or, or in a newspaper. Yeah, and... and there is a guy, this uh, Benito the Cheeto, I call him, uh, who uh, uh, you know, called the, uh, the the press the enemy of the American people, which is amazing to me. We could talk about that the rest of the day, but we're not going to do that. And you, you talked about uh, uh, this fellow that I had not heard of, Jacob Abrams, who was a Communist Party leader. And oftentimes, you know, I've heard it said, when people hear the word communist, they stop thinking. But this was a... a, a this, the case, it sounds like, kind of defines some of the basis of the word liberalism, Justice Holmes' defense of the rights, the free speech rights 
of Communist Party leader uh, Jacob Abrams. Uh, and and, and it, it seems to me, you know, the, the First Amendment is there not to defend inoffensive speech. It's there to defend offensive speech. So I wonder if you could, you know, nowadays, uh, well, I wonder if you could talk just a little bit about, about that uh, case, Justice Holmes, uh, uh, defending uh, Jacob Abrams, the communist leader. Sure. You know, in March of 1919, Holmes wrote three opinions in cases called Schenck, um, Debs, and Frowork, and, and, and affirming the Espionage Act convictions of radicals, including um, the Socialist Party leader, um, Eugene Debs, and then um, that following fall, Holmes sort of has second thoughts. And, and he, he, he writes a famous dissent in, a, in an almost identical case of this guy named Jacob Abrams and says that, you know, there's no imminent threat to the U.S. war effort by um, printing leaflets and, you know, circulating leaflets that are critical of the U.S. entry into the war. And and so, you know, Holmes really starts to define our free speech jurisprudence, which most people don't realize was largely undefined um, oh, right. for much of our early history. Um, you know, as yeah. early as 1908, Justice Holmes thought the only thing the First Amendment was protected was freedom from prior restraint. That means you couldn't be censored from publishing, but you could suffer criminal consequences for what you published. Oh my. There was almost no free speech protections. In fact, the First Amendment didn't even apply to the states until about 1925, in a case um, called Gitlow. So the states could criminalize anything the press did up until 1925. And the federal government, really, there were no major cases that limited what the federal government could do in the name of press freedoms or speech uh, freedoms. And so this dissent in in November of 1919 in the Abrams case um, was huge. And and Holmes elaborated on that dissent in subsequent decisions. And along the lines, Bert, of what you were talking about, um, in a a case um, involving a woman named... um, Rosika Schwimmer in 1930, he said the First Amendment is about freedom for the thought we hate. And I think that really encapsulates yeah. uh, some of the ideas um, we were getting at. It's sort of a tolerance for ideas that we find abhorrent, um, but um, should still be protected by the First Amendment. Wow. That, I, I had no idea. I lo- that's one thing I love about hidden history, you know, learning all this stuff. If you just tuned in, Bert Cohen here. The show is Keeping Democracy Alive, and it's a heavy lift, believe me. Our guest today is Brad Snyder. We're talking about his new book, House of Truth, A Washington Political Salon and the Foundations of American Liberalism. It's amazing to me these days, and we're, ta- you know, we're talking about liberalism was defeated but came back. There was a renaissance of, of liberalism after it was defeated. I'm trying to give some hope to, uh, to liberals these days. And it is amazing to me that these days a lot of people believe liberals are out to censor free speech, that only politically correct speech is okay, notably on college campuses. What, what do you think your liberal house of truth lions would have to say about, about that perception? You know, you know that, uh, oh, if it's insulting, uh, it can be uh, 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 limited. Free speech can be limited. And the wide perception that that's what liberals are about is limiting free speech. What would these, uh, these guys from the House of, House of Truth have to say about that? Yeah, I think they'd be really dismayed. You know, I think they'd be really dismayed um, with some of the mob mentality on campus and the violence that's erupt on some of the campuses. I'm um, in reaction 
to speakers. Uh, you know, Brandeis said the solution to things um, like this was not violence, was not censorship, but more speech, right? And I, the academic I like freedom that. was really under attack um, during the, this period in which I write my book. In fact, Holmes's switch on free speech, um, I asserted in my book, was largely a reaction to the Red Scare after World War One that affected not only communists like Jacob Abrams or socialists like Eugene Debs, um, but also establishment figures at Harvard Law School. The dean of Harvard Law School, Roscoe Pound, and Holmes's good friend, a Harvard Law professor, Felix Frankfurter, who lived in the House of Truth, um, were, their jobs were in jeopardy that summer. Um, there were conservative members, um, alumni of Harvard Law School, that wanted um, Pound and Frankfurter kicked off the faculty, and, be, and they accused... Um, Pound and Frankfurter of radicalizing the students. Um, and so when Holmes, Holmes went to their defense, he wrote the president of Harvard Law School that summer of 1919, A. Lawrence Lowell, and said, basically, he said, if you lose Pound and Frankfurter on this faculty, there is no Harvard Law School. And that was huge into sort of stopping this conservative alumni movement to try to oust Pound and Frankfurter. In fact, they became within one vote of trying to oust one of their colleagues Zechariah Chafee, um, for criticizing um, the government's um, prosecution in the case of Jacob Abrams. Um, so academic freedom was everywhere here, and, and, and so the, this emphasis on First Amendment protections was really about the free exchange of ideas and not censoring people um, it, it, just because they were espousing controversial ideas. So I think this group at the House of Truth, Holmes and Frankfurter and Pound and Brandeis and and Zechariah Chafee, who was a huge First Amendment theorist, would be dismayed um, with um, political correctness taken too far yeah. um, when it leads to violence or censorship. Yeah, it really bugs me as a as a, a card-carrying member of the ACLU, former board member and liberal. It really bugs me when there's that political correctness that's and it you know that's that's forced down. Uh, it's just it's just uh, wrong, and I, I wish I wish liberals would. Stand up more. I mean, the ACLU, terrific. Uh, and they came out of this period, actually, uh, I believe, uh, and just say, no, this is not liberalism. This is something other than liberalism. And our brand is, I wonder if, if the liberal brand, I mean, they didn't have that word, I, I would think, uh, back then, but I wonder if the liberal brand itself uh, was hurt with the election of uh, Warren Harding in 1920. Yeah, I mean, I think I would argue just the opposite, right? That that this really, like, you mentioned, Bert, that the ACLU started this during this period. Felix Frankfurter um, was one of the founding members of the National Committee um, of the ACLU. Uh, the ACLU played a huge role in these post-World War I um, free speech cases and in, in, you know, beating back some of this Red Scare hysteria on yeah. free speech. And it, it really gave the the ACLU, its power, I think, that it was, was standing up for people who espoused unpopular ideas. And, you know, at, at times in its history, the ACLU has lost sight of that. I'm reading a book on the Japanese internment cases right now, and the mm -hmm. ACLU um, really didn't back um, some of the um, people who were detained, some mm -hmm. of the people who were interned, um, and, and didn't really put its full support behind the challenge um, to Hmm. President Roosevelt's executive order in the way it should have, and it sort of lost sight of the fact of where it gained its power in the wake of World War One. But I think today we're seeing the ACLU, as we see on the front pages of the paper today, as the sort of chief adversary 
of the administration. And, and people yes. like um, David Cole, um, the national legal director of the ACLU, um, really sort of leading the legal challenges um, to what's going on today. Um, again, I, I think there are parallels about, you know, liberals um, really, really empowered more than ever and getting back to kind of first principles um, of liberalism yeah. when they're out of political power. You know, it's interesting, during the 2016 campaign, uh, there were uh, uh, Bernie or bust people. I mean, I was a Bernie delegate, definitely a Bernie supporter. Had he been the nominee, I think he would be president now. But there was an argument back then that, well, let's just let Trump win, and that'll help we us on the left organize. I mean, I still, you know, for the sake of the, a lot of people are going to get hurt. I wish uh, Trump had not won. But it kind of, you know, there's nothing like adversity to organize. I mean, let, let's face it, you know, the people, I mean, the ACLU, for example, I think probably without even sending out any mailers, got a huge bunch of money, many millions of dollars, because people saw what was going on here. And I think people who uh, had not been organized before are getting organized now and getting political. Uh, it, there, there are some parallels, for sure. And in the early 20th century, Certainly, there was great skepticism about immigrants. There had been a lot of skepticism about immigrants, you know, throughout the uh, late 19th century as well as they came flooding in. In 1920, Warren Harding was a business Republican who campaigned and won on an America First message. The Red Scares were an ugly product of that message. The Red Scares, uh, how, did, how did fear of foreign immigrants add fuel to that allegedly idealistic fire? Tell us, uh, please, about the now infamous Palmer raids and the reaction uh, that Americans had to the to the Palmer raids. I mean, it was fear of of immigrants, different last names, but also fear of you know, communism taking over there. Even though you know, I mean, it's like now you know, limiting uh, immigrants uh, from Muslim countries. The reality is, there's very, very little acts of terrorism from these uh, uh, immigrants, but it's it's going on. So I wonder if you could uh, see any well, parallels there. Sure. A. Mitchell Palmer was actually Wilson's attorney general. And, you oh, know, in right, the last couple years of his presidency, to be fair, there were a lot of great things that Wilson did. There were some terrible things, including, um, re, you know, deeply segregating Washington, D.C., and making life miserable um, for Washington's black middle class. But he did some great things. Um, in terms of federal legislation, the last couple of years of, of Wilson's administration, Wilson was really, um, strokes had largely incapacitated him, and and Wilson's attorney general, A. Mitchell Palmer, mm -hmm. um, responded to the Red Scare and the bombing of, of Palmer's own, own home um, in, in on R Street in Washington, um, not far from where the House of Truth stood, um, with a, a massive roundup of radical immigrants with ties um, to communism and socialism. And that roundup um, was led um, by a young um, Justice Department and Bureau investigation official um, named J. J. Edgar Hoover. Oh, yes. And, and so um, Palmer and Hoover, um, with um, no regard whatsoever for the Fourth Amendment, um, and, and, and you know, just you know, searches and seizures without warrants all over the place, mm. dragnets, um, rounded up radical immigrants in major cities all across the country and scheduled them for deportation. And it was um, Frankfurter and Chafee who, who went deep into investigation, at least with these Boston immigrants who had been rounded up and showed all of the constitutional violations. After they got the 16 to the 20 um, free from deportation, 
they wrote a report um, for an organization called something, um, the National Popular Government League. Hmm. They basically took on um, the Attorney General with a with a, just a massively detailed report uh, of the Justice Department's um, unconstitutional conduct. And, so, and Roscoe Pound signed this report. Felix Frankfurter signed the report. Um, Zechariah Chafee signed the report. And Palmer said they were lying. And um, their response to Palmer was, uh, you know, that, you know, we're, not only are we not lying, um, we'll testify under oath before Congress about what we found. Um, uh, the Justice Department did not take them up um, on their offer um, because they were telling the truth. Uh, but it had huge effects. I think the Palmer raids were really a dark moment yes. in this nation's history. And, oh, yeah. and it seems like that, you know, we, we didn't learn all the lessons yeah. from, from, from those raids that, that, we, they, that we maybe should have. Uh, that that the, that you know the, the Constitution is something that we need to respect, um, and and that the Constitution is a break um, on on federal power um, when it tries to do these types of things. Boy, yeah, we there's something about uh, building up myth. It's it's essential to forget. You know, there has to be almost a, a specific exercise in forgetting, because you know a lot of interests don't want us. To, to learn from history. And uh, you know, there's fear now. I mean, probably you know people, I know people who uh, know other people who are immigrants here who are scared of being rounded up. And could it happen again? Boy, I, I think it could. You know, it's this uh, uh, disease kind of a fear. Fear sells. Fear is, uh, <laughs> look at the networks. They focus on things that uh, that raise fear. I guess it uh, improves their ratings. I don't know. But uh, I think Japanese internment is another good parallel. Sure. Right, another good historical yeah, parallel. In, in just sort of what um, Justice Murphy called in his dissent um, in, in the um, Korematsu case, where he, he really highlighted the lack of a particularized inquiry or an individualized assessment of who was or was not a security threat. And I think that's the problem in both the Palmer Raids example and the, the Japanese internment example um, that, that you sort of highlighted, Bert, was, you know, fear, you know, of a group of people, yes. um, you know, is a substitute um, for sort of due process, um, you know, Fourth Amendment, um, search and seizure um, rules, um, getting warrants, and for really having evidence um, that someone's a security threat um, before um, they're detained or before they're deported. Yeah, and it sure is good at getting votes, that's for sure, unfortunately. And I, I happen to think that if the uh, immigrants that Trump is so worried about, you know, were, were uh, blonde-haired and blue-eyed, I don't think there'd be a problem with that. There's like more, you know, it's no lack of racism, and that certainly was the case uh, in in the, uh, you know, mid early 20th centuries. And of course, one of the biggest cases that we haven't touched on affecting civil liberties and attitudes towards immigrants was, of course, the Sacco and Vanzetti trial, of 1927. One of the uh, alumni of the House of Truth, Felix Frankfurter, called for a new trial for the Italian-born anarchists. What did he and the other liberals say was wrong with that trial? I suppose this could be a long discussion. Yeah, well, you know, so Sacco and Vanzetti were, um, as you said, these two of Italian anarchists who'd been convicted of a robbery and a murder right. in um, South Braintree, Massachusetts. And, and, and they were certainly anarchists, and, yes, and, 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 which made them and know, rather Italians. unpopular uh-huh. during their trial. But what Frankfurter did in, in early 1927 
was he said, I'm going to read the record on this, especially um, after the um, defense had alleged that the prosecution had engaged in some misconduct with its chief ballistics expert. Um, and the prosecution didn't really deny that it had tried to mislead the jury with its ballistics expert. Once Frankfurter heard that, that it, it had used some misleading testimony from its main expert, he, he, he read the entire record in the case. And he said, there is no way this trial was fair. And he wrote a book um, in 1927 when the case was still pending between, before the Supreme Judicial Court of Massachusetts. Uh, and his thesis was that the trial had been completely unfair and a violation of due process. And then after the book came out, um, it came to light that the trial judge in the case had made a bunch of extrajudicial comments about how um, he was going to make sure um, that, they, that, that these anarchists um, were convicted and used some really not nice language. He would make some comments to people at his country club and, and where he was staying during the trial. You know, just wait until you see my charge to the jury, right? Those kind of things, kind of a hanging judge mm. kind of deal. And, and so once all this came to light, Frankfurter said, look, let's have a new trial in this case. It wasn't that they were innocent, because I, I think we're still unclear about whether Sacco and Vanzetti um, were innocent. The sort of historical consensus is that um, Sacco was guilty and, and Vanzetti was innocent. But, but I, I still don't think we really know. But Frankfurter's point was, hey, let's have a fair trial with a fair trial judge uh, and, and a fair cross, cross-examination of witnesses, um, both exculpatory and inculpatory, and then let's see if they get convicted. And, and that, he really turned the case into a national and even worldwide cause celeb. In fact, the world was more upset about the case um, before the nation was, but Frankfurter's book really became the Bible for people who thought that Sacco and Vanzetti um, should have a new trial. And what Frankfurter did was he relied on this liberal network that he had created at the House of Truth mm. um, from 1912 to 1919. You know, he enlisted Walter Lippmann, who by this time was the editorial page editor for the New York World, and made the world, um, which was really a, a quite a, a liberal newspaper, more liberal than the New York Times, and, and more liberal, much more liberal than the New York Herald Tribune, um, as really the, the chief outlet for, to the public to try to persuade them that, hey, Sacco and Manzetti um, deserved a new trial. Most of the Boston newspapers by 1927 um, uh, had, had kept their mouths shut mm-hmm. or, or, or thought that we should just, you know, that, that enough was enough. Six, six years of appeals had been enough, uh, and that they they were guilty, and that they should you know be executed. Uh, but um, Frankfurter didn't give up, and he, he really. Um, and then Justice Holmes heard three um, appeals for a stay of execution for Sacco and Vanzetti at his summer home in Beverly Farms, Massachusetts. And my book tells um, how um, why he rejected those stays of execution. He basically said the world cares more for red than for black. That he saw far greater instances of injustice um, in court, in criminal cases involving summer, southern blacks than he did in the six years of appeals for Sacco and Vanzetti. And it was really kind of chiding his liberal friends, like, why are you so caught up about this case? Right? There are far worse ones in this country and far worse ones that the Supreme Court hears every day. Uh, so it, it was really a fascinating case. And, and in, in that, those, the, the final hours before the execution of Sacco and Vanzetti, this race to get a stay from either Justice Holmes, um, Justice Brandeis, um, or, or Justice Stone um, really involved everyone from the House of Truth yeah. um, really fighting to the end. 
it was it was really fascinating and really one of the most fun parts of the book to research, and I think um, one of the most fun parts of the book to read. Ah, oh, fascinating. Uh, who knew? I mean, I, I will admit I had not, uh, I've read a fair amount of history, but I had not heard of the House of Truth, but the alumni, my goodness, certainly made a huge, huge difference. Uh, and, and this is what's making a difference today, I think. You're seeing the, the, the networks that liberals um, have taken for granted right. for a long time really kick in right now. And I think that's what happened then, too. Right? These networks that they have sort of established, um, both in the press, um, you know, political organizations, um, sort of what, what, what we might call civil society, um, are, are really, really getting together and, and, and uniting. Well, obviously, they didn't have the social media back then. What kind of networks did they have? It sounds like there was a, a network within the judiciary system. Uh, what else? Uh, you know, I think the founding of the New Republic was like their Twitter uh, uh-huh. and their, their uh, you know, the, the, the World Wide Web. You know, it was a much slower news cycle, obviously, but, yeah. you know, the New Republic, um, even up until, you know, through 1927 and beyond, um, was really an outlet for a lot of their ideas. And, and stood for um, sort of the center of liberalism. The nation did too, right? The nation, right, was, I was wondering you know, that. even back then, um, was on the side of Sacco and Vanzetti. So, you know, I think th- there were newspapers and magazines um, where they were able to get their ideas out there. So, and, um, the, you know, the media was a big part of this. Yeah, yeah, capturing the media. That's, that's where it's all played out. And, you know, the politics is theater. Always has been, always will be, I believe. And uh, so you write that uh, during the 1920s and early 30s, the liberals lost a lot of battles, but they won some too. End of quote. They kept on losing. How did they keep up the effort? Tell us about some of the wins, please. That, that yeah, I mean, fired them up. I, I thought the wins were this recognition that the Supreme Court really mattered, that even when they were out of political power, that the composition of the Supreme Court really mattered. And so uh, Herbert Hoover, who was not their candidate for president, who had spent sort of eight years in um, the Harding and Coolidge administrations that they saw as both corrupt and inept, um, respectively. Um, you know, he was the Commerce Secretary um, during uh, that time period. Uh, when Hoover becomes president, they really uh, attack his Supreme Court nominees. And, and one in particular, a guy named John J. Parker, who was a federal judge, from North Carolina, uh, both organized labor and the NAACP for the first time in its history um, oppose um, Judge Parker as Supreme Court nominee, and they succeed in, in persuading the Senate um, to vote down um, Parker's nomination. That's a huge moment. It's a huge moment for a number of reasons. Um, labor and, and, and racial organizations weren't exactly working together yeah, I'm sure. during that nomination, but you saw the coalitions kind of form here uh-huh. um, between people who, th- who felt strongly about labor issues and people who felt, felt strongly about racial justice. Parker had made some unfortunate statements earlier in his political career um, about how why blacks shouldn't vote um, in elections. <laughs> and, and so uh, that was one of the um, sort of things that, that really um, raised the ire of the NAACP uh, against his nomination. Sure. I, that was huge to vote, um, to vote him down and out of office and, and, and not have Parker um, go to the Supreme Court. The other huge move that I discuss in the book is the lobbying campaign sort of behind the scenes after they voted down, Parker's, get Parker's nomination voted down, when Justice Holmes retires. They wa- wanted Hoover not to take sectional considerations into 
into play. You know, to appoint a Westerner or to appoint a Southerner just for the sake of appointing a Westerner or a Southerner, they wanted somebody of Holmes's stature and of Holmes's sort of constitutional ideology um, to replace him. And, and so they, they had a huge campaign um, on behalf of Benjamin Cardozo to make sure that Cardozo was Holmes's replacement, and they succeeded. And um, so uh, that, those were huge things, the Parker fight and the Cardozo nomination for the future of liberalism. Without Cardozo, um, the, the New Deal would have had a tough time surviving constitutional challenge. I mean, Cardozo was only on the court for a short time, from 1932 um, to 1938, but that was really a critical period in our history. And so having Cardozo on the court paid huge dividends for liberals. Well, talk about the court and liberals now. It's going to be very, very interesting to watch and see how much uh, backbone these liberal uh, U.S. senators have when it comes to uh, appointees. I mean, obviously, the uh, uh, the Republicans in the Senate uh, stonewalled the uh, Obama nominee, who was not particularly liberal, as far as I could tell. Uh, but now there's Trump has a nominee. Will they stand up to it? I, w- I would think this would be an opportunity for liberals to unite. I don't know if there's any kind of, I mean, I don't think he said anything bad about uh, people of color, <laughs> like like uh, the person you were talking about. But uh, this is an opportunity for people to stand up. And for, you know, we have these, uh, not salons now, but uh, social media where people can can get together and push. There's tremendous opportunity there. Uh, what do you see happening with this uh, uh, Supreme Court nominee, the first one that uh, Trump has put up there? Will a liberal? Yeah, I mean, I should it? preface all my statements by saying, I mean, I think Judge Gorsuch is as qualified um, a Republican nominee as um, Chief Judge Garland was as a Democratic nominee. Yeah, they're, they're both they're really qualified. high caliber yes. uh, nominees. And it, it, it's going to be, I think it's going to be nearly impossible to. Um, to get Judge Gorsuch not um, voted down mm. as a nominee, he's just so well qualified. His his work product is so good um, that that. But I don't mean I don't think that means liberals should stop fighting. And I, I, I agree with you. I think that Judge Gorsuch's nominee um, could be a rallying point for liberals. But one thing I learned about from my, from writing this book, The House of Truth, was really not just the opposition to individual nominees, but to the op- but to sort of criticism of the court and its decisions Uh on an ongoing basis, Uh that liberals shouldn't just um, focus on the court during a nomination period, but should really be vigilant in attacking the court and its decisions that they disagree with, um, you know, when there is no nomination pending. And I thought that, you know, Frankfurter and Littman and others um, really sort of demonized the court in a lot of ways. Part of the way they Hmm. demonized the court was by celebrating the dissents of Justice Holmes and Justice Brandeis, Uh Um, not only on free speech issues, but also on fair criminal trial issues. Uh, So, you know, I think liberals um, can attack the court and its its decisions in a lot of ways, uh, and that just because um, Judge Gorsuch might get confirmed doesn't mean that liberals should sort of end the fight. I think that's a, a real lesson of my book. It seems like that liberals only tune in when there's a nomination and that there needs to be a more sustained criticism of the court and, and, and more of a, you know, a ground game almost on a permanent basis. 
And these decisions by the court are just happening all the time. I mean, there's you know not just the Supreme Court, but lots of different courts. And there was that you know the Hobby Lobby decision, the recent decision about transgender. These affect people's lives, and you know it's it's not as easy to focus on. I mean, if there's one person, a Gorsuch or whatever, that's that's easy to focus on. But but these are really important. Uh, uh, you know occurrences that that go on in the judicial system, and I'm I'm hoping that you know it seems like one of the things that came out of the House of Truth was that people can be active. Did they connect with with the populace? Did was there a lot of support for them? The the you know alumni of the House of Truth did did they have a, did it stimulate any kind of mass movement? Uh, you know I'm not sure. I think the closest they came to a mass movement was early on. With Theodore Roosevelt, there was an element of populism, uh-huh. in, in, but with both Theodore Roosevelt and La Follette, by the way, who was also running for president in 1912, and both Theodore Roosevelt and La Follette ran against the Supreme Court of the United States. Uh-huh. I mean, they're in their bids for the presidency. And, you know, I think um, that would be a way um, for for people to you know to have a candidate. Um, you know, I know you mentioned Bernie Sanders before, and I know he was largely running against the banks and. Um, was running against free trade, um, but it would be interesting to have um, a liberal political candidate run against the Supreme Court of the United States. Wow! Um, because that's um, th- that would be to me a way to connect elites um, with um, with um, with with the masses and to say, hey, the, the Supreme Court um, is um, too conservative and and it does not have um, your best interest in mind. I, I want to just add one more thing. Yes, please. I think really conservatives have done a much better job learning the lessons of the House of Truth um, than liberals have. Um, which is the importance of the court long term and sort of a sustained um, ground game against the Supreme Court and the decisions that it doesn't like. It seems more invested in the future of the court, conservatism, um, than than liberalism is. You know, I just, I think there's a a greater vigilance and a sustained vigilance by conservatives, by the federal society. Um, And and that was largely something that the people at the House of Truth did um, in the teens and the 20s was really a sustained attack on the court and its decisions. Of course, um, that era was known as the Lochner era for a case um, known as Lochner versus New York, um, which struck down a maximum hour law for bakers. But the court was really viewed um, during that time period as anti-labor, mm. as anti-organized labor, um, as anti um, a lot of laws that today we take for granted, minimum wage laws, maximum hour laws, um, laws that benefited um, labor unions. Uh, so I think liberals need to really think about the importance of the court to their own politics. Boy, I'd say so. I mean, that the whole Citizens United thing just shook up everything and the one following that. A lot goes on in the courts, and that would be, a, a, I think, it seems like a lot of, uh, <laughs> kind of like 1920, that, that a lot of liberals are sort of wandering dazed in the desert. What do we do? Where's our power? And I would think uh, so many decisions, and as you said, connecting uh, the elites with the uh, populist movement, that's a very interesting uh, idea, I think. And uh, Yeah, I mean, it, it even looked more hopeless in the 1920s after yeah. Harding got elected. Harding got a succession of Supreme Court nominees, um, one of whom was a former president, Chief Justice Taft, right? So he, he put William Howard Taft on the Supreme Court as Chief Justice. And then once he had Taft on the Supreme Court, Taft was really helping Harding or really telling Harding which people to put on the court. Uh, so you, you had a, a former president advising a president sitting on the Supreme Court about um, 
which conservatives to add to the court. It really looked hopeless for liberals yeah. um, hmm. in the mid-1920s as conservative after conservative um, was put on the Supreme Court. And yet, you know, by, um, by, having, by attacking um, Supreme Court decisions in the New Republic and in the New York world, and by really putting pressure yeah. on future presidents with regard to their Supreme Court nominees, um, liberals really prioritized um, the Supreme Court as something that needed to change. Yeah, and if we can connect with that, that's about connecting. I mean, uh, I think Bernie Sanders connected a lot with uh, you know millions of millennials and others. Hillary Clinton eh, didn't connect so much, but it is really about connecting. So uh, I don't know if there should be a spoiler alert here. What, how, what happened? How did uh, the House of Truth end up, and, and what happened to the guys uh, after that, and women as, as well in there? Yeah, sure. Well, so uh, you know, Justice Holmes, even though I think by today's standards, he wouldn't be considered all that liberal, um, what, what really became this liberal icon. And, and so on his death in, in 1935, and, uh, you know, he became the sort of symbol of liberalism, you know, to the point where, um, you know, Franklin Roosevelt in the early days of his White House, just three days in, um, visited Justice Holmes. Hmm. Um, on his birthday, on his 91st birthday, hmm. um, at 1720 I Street, went to a private residence that, which was a break with presidential protocol, um, and and met with um, Holmes, which is really how how the book ends. Um, but um, it's FDR who who really um, you know proclaims uh, Justice Holmes the hero of all liberals, and then of course um, FDR puts Felix Frankfurter on the Supreme Court once Cardozo dies. Um, so Cardozo dies in 1938, and then in early 1939, um, FDR puts Frankfurter on the Supreme Court. Walter Lippmann, um, who started out as a socialist before he joined the New Republic, and then becomes a liberal along with this New Republic crowd, um, really became quite conservative. Um, joined uh, the New York Herald Tribune as a columnist and, and became um, very isolationist and even appeasing um, to the Nazi regime Yikes. in the early 30s and, and broke with a lot of liberals including Frankfurter. And then um, Gutzon Borglum, of course, um, seemed his politics were all over the place um, and it totally um, defies any sort of simple characterization. Uh, but he really benefited from the largest of the federal government, um, uh, Calvin Coolidge in particular, uh, but also Hoover, but really Franklin Roosevelt. And it was those presidents, by giving um, Borglum uh, federal money, enabled him to create Mount Rushmore. And I sort of end the book by describing Mount Rushmore as this um, this symbol of liberalism, sort of warts and all of what um, the federal government can accomplish, um, but also um, mm. some of its problems. Uh, interesting. Any kind of pep talk you can give to uh, liberals, dispirited liberals right now to you know learn from this and, and keep it up? Yeah, well, I, I would give them the same pep talk that I gave my law students um, you know, two days after the presidential <laughs> election, left, right, and conservative, that if you're if you're a liberal, get involved, right? If you're a liberal, get involved at the state level, at the local level, um, or in some opposition group. And, you know, if, if you're uh, an independent um, and, and are willing to join the Trump administration, we need rule of law, um, independence in the Trump administration. And the same thing for Republicans um, who are in my class who voted for Trump. I said, get involved, go go work in the administration, and we need rule of law values. I, I, I believe that the two most important groups of people going forward are, are lawyers and journalists. And if they do their jobs, um, then our country will be better off. And you know that's largely what the House of Truth network was about, was about liberals and journalists and politicians sort of getting together and standing up for what they believed in and standing up for the rights of the underdog. 
Well, as I say, there's nothing like adversity to organize people. The best yes. organizer against the uh, Vietnam War was Richard Nixon, I thought. And uh, perhaps uh, Trump can do it for us liberals. Fascinating book. Our guest today has been Brad Snyder. The book is uh, House of Truth, a Washington political salon and the foundations of American liberalism. It's published by Oxford University. Thank you so much for uh, spending some time with us today. Perhaps we can inspire some people. Well, Bert, it's been a real pleasure. I've enjoyed our conversation. Thank you. A different house, but a house. Thanks for listening. There is a house in New Orleans. They call the rising sun. In the house of the rising sun